The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Annabelle Streets, is a writer of highly researched and award-winning fiction, as well as the author of narrative and practical nonfiction. Under the pseudonym of Annabelle Abs, she is the author of Windswept, Walking the Path of Trailblazing Women, came out in 2021. It's a nonfiction feminist meditation on the power of walking in the lives of several extraordinary women, including Georgia O'Keeffe, Simone de Beauvoir, and Frida Lawrence. A little later in this podcast, we're going to talk about another amazing woman who, who wandered in Tibet that we don't really hear about much anymore, and we're going to ask her to tell us about, about her Writing as Annabelle Streets, her newest book is 52 Ways to Walk. Annabelle Streets, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to this because I love to walk, and the book was a joy. So this conversation will, will be the same, I am sure. As I was reading 52 Ways to Walk, I was struck by this thought. I usually don't ask you to explain myself to myself, but I'm going to try it. (laughs) This this thought struck me that I walk, because I I am an avid walker, I walk for the romance of walking. So that idea popped into my head. I was reading your book, and then I said, what the hell does that mean? So I don't know. (laughs) But I thought I'd start out by asking you, since your book triggered the thought, about the romance of walking, if you think of walking that way and what the romance of walking might be. Well, I do absolutely think of walking in, in that way because walking is, it's, it's just so many, so many things. Um, but there's something intimate about walking. There's something very adventurous about walking. I think, I think so, so romance as a word works on so many different levels, doesn't it? But I think when you talk about the romance of walking, you're, I, I think you're partly talking about the the way in which walking opens you up to the world and the way in which it enables you to have encounters, chance encounters with everything from uh, people to landscapes to plants to buildings. And so I think I, I think when you say when you talk about the romance, the romance of walking, you're you're talking about um you're, you're talking about you're talking about that, that 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 love that sort of love affair with walking love affair with what walking brings with how walking makes you feel because again again walking walking works at so many different levels you know our, our bodies like to walk and we were designed this is the odd thing isn't it really we were designed not to sit in a car at a wheel our, every bit of our body was was built to to move to walk 
and, and not really to run or, or jump, a little bit of that maybe, but mainly to walk if you think of our, our origins as nomads. You know, so we're designed to walk, but walking also works on our, works on our brain too, and works on our mood. So it changes how we, how we feel. It, it changes our brain literally rewires itself when we walk so there's something very powerful that happens to every little bit of our body and mind and brain when and it we doesn't walk. and it doesn't this doesn't require you know a, a day-long trek i mean this can happen in you talk about very very short walks this this transformation physiological psychological and i would i would even say spiritual you know you, you you just said that we're made for walking you know biologically that's what it's all about and if you look at well i'm going to stick to you know the religion i know best which is my own judaism walking is central to judaism it was sort of part of the the dna of who the early jews were the first mm. commandment that god gives to Abraham, who becomes the founder, Abraham and Sarah, the founding parents of Judaism, the first commandment that God uh, commands them is to walk. And it's in Genesis 12, first verse. Mm. You know, God says, walk, leave your home, leave your parents, leave your country, and go to a place. God doesn't even tell them where they're going. Just go to a place and I'll show you when you get there. And so, so Judaism is founded on walking. The Jewish legal system is called halakha. It means the way we walk. When you look oh, at yeah. Jesus, who's a Jew and, and grew in, growing up in that environment, Jesus is always walking. I mean, like always you said, walking. he can't get on a bike and he doesn't have a car, but he could get on an ox cart or something, right? But he's always walking. And when he needs spiritual sustenance, he leaves the path and walks out into the wilderness. Yes. So, so as Westerners, walking is in our DNA, and yet, I mean, and then you can look at the Hajj, the pilgrimage walking in, in Islam. So it, it's this Western, deeply Western thing, though I'm going to get to an Eastern aspect in a second. But if that's true, how did we lose our love of walking? Oh, that's such a good question. And the other thing is that we've lo the love of walking has been lost in such a short period of time, you know, even... Even well, my parents didn't drive. Even you know, sort of forty years ago, it, it wasn't normal. Certainly over in Europe, it's slightly different in America. I think forty years ago, it wasn't normal for everyone to have one one car. Now everyone has two cars. So so it's it's all happened in a very short period of time. But I mean, I come from a, a deeply Catholic one line of my family. My ancestors, you know, very very Catholic, going back generations and generations. And the pilgrimage, going on a pilgrimage, was just. A really important part of of their faith, and of course, the pilgrimage, as you've just pointed out, is all. It's just about it's about walking. So, so I think because I because I grew up with with no drivers in my family, and we walked everywhere. I perhaps have a slight head start in that I've always walking is just sort of in my DNA anyway. I sort of, you know, I didn't have any choice, but. Now, I, I cannot believe, in fact, one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I was really I mean, getting very distressed at the number of people who would, I would say, let's go for a walk. And they would say, oh, I can't, it's, it's raining, or, oh, it's a bit cold, or, you know, every, every reason under the sun. And I thought, this is just crazy, because in the past, we all walked all the time, whatever the weather, whatever the time of day, in, in light, in dark, you know, uphill, downhill. I think that we've, we've sort of lost, we've lost, we're losing, we're losing that bit of us. Although I think during the pandemic, uh, I don't know about you, but certainly over here, there was 
has been a huge sort of surge in walking and people are rediscovering it and also reclaiming it. Yeah, I think that's probably true here also. I lived in Los Angeles, this was years ago, a long, long time ago, and for just a couple of years. And one of the things that struck me moving from Miami, Florida, where, which is a very outside walking kind of place, uh, in a sense, I guess, but to LA, my office was, I don't know, two blocks from the supermarket where they had this wonderful lunch counter. And I would walk to lunch and people would say, you're walking? I mean, why don't you just take the car? <laughs> I mean, it was two blocks. But the thought of someone walking those two blocks was just, oh, that's too much. It was just mind-blowing to them. Yes, yes, yes. That, that, yes, it's a mystery to me, but it's quite, it's quite common, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to yeah, think so, why walk when you, can, when you can be driven or you can drive or... Yeah, there's, um, there's something about, I mean, we're going to lose our legs. We're all just going to get atrophied and just have wheels instead of, instead of limbs. But, yeah. you know, we mentioned that the Jewish, Christian, Muslim connection to walking. Just a few days ago, Thich Nhat Hanh passed away. And he's, you know, one of the great contemporary Zen Buddhist teachers. Yeah. And central to his spiritual practice is, is walking. He's got a yes. number of books on walking. Yes. And so I, I took, you know, pulled those books off the shelf and started to take a look at them, especially one called The Long Road Turns to Joy. And I want to just quote you something from what he writes in that book. He says, when you take a step, you can touch the earth in such a way that you establish yourself in the present moment. You arrive at the here and the now. You don't need to make any effort at all. Suddenly, you're free from all projects, all worries, and all expectations. You are fully present, fully alive, and you are touching the earth. And I thought, boy, that's right in line with what you're saying also. Yeah, that's a wonderful quote. What do you think about the notion of, he says, you don't need to make any effort at all? Do you get a sense that walking, and you have a whole chapter in your book on slow walking, Mm, what mm. what's the relationship either to not doing it because it's too much effort like it's raining or it's cold or the gift of walking because it is effortless in the sense that we were born we've been bred for hundreds of thousands of years to walk talk about the yes. effortless effortlessness of it it is it is absolutely effortless assuming that you are able-bodied right uh, and, and literally that that feeling of joy when you just can you know just walk out of your door all you need is your you know your door key to get back in you you don't need anything else uh, and in fact I, I always think a walk is, is best if you don't if you leave everything behind leave your certainly leave your phone behind and there's something very liberating about having so little with you whereas if you go if you go off in a car you know you've got the whole car haven't you you have to find somewhere to park the car and you you're, you're sort of lumbered really but walking is completely uh, liberating you you don't need anything you don't even need to know where you're going you can just set off you can go where you like uh, certainly again in Europe when I whenever I've been in the states I've, I have found walking a little bit more challenging over here we have an incredible uh, network of footpaths public access across all this private land which I think is quite different in the states so you I can literally walk out of my door and front door and I can just walk and walk and walk and walk 
you know, through fields and forests and on and on and on. And just to know that you can do that and that that landscape is there for you is, I, well, I just find that incredibly um well, well, liberating, but also, if, if you know, we feel it's such a privilege, isn't it, to know that you, you, you can do that. Well, it's a privilege to know that you have that kind of access. I mean, I live about a mile from, uh, it's called the Greenway. So it's, it's forest and a fairly large, they call it a river, but maybe it's just a large stream. And I can, you know, I walk out of the little town I live in into, uh, can't say the wilderness because it is, you know, it's, it's an organized thing. But yeah, you get to get away from all of it. On the other hand, uh, since you know we're talking to you from London, and you're talking about all these footpaths that that are part of the English countryside, I watch a lot of British TV, all the British mysteries. I and, see you. Yeah, and <laughs> as I'm watching these things, those footpaths. That's where all the murders happen. <laughs> like, wait a minute. I'm not walking over there. That's where all these people are being killed. Um, um, no. Yeah, okay, I have to say that. That's just, that's just the television, yeah. <laughs> I, know. I know. I just had to bring that up. So anyone, anyone else is addicted to BritBox, which is all the British shows on uh, my cable system yeah, here. It's not really like that here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about walking with dogs, because I do a lot of my walking. In fact, today my dog is at the vet, so I noticed I, I didn't get up. I took her for a walk this morning, but usually by now we would have had one or two additional walks uh, and then a long 90-minute walk in the afternoon. You have, oh. Again, you have a, a whole chapter on walking with, with dogs in particular, yeah. Talk, talk yeah. to us about that. Well, I had a I had a black Labrador for about 14 and a half years. She died two years ago. Mm, and I, well, you know what it's like as a dog owner. As a dog owner, I think, and I think being a dog owner is fantastic because you have to go out whatever the weather, whether you feel like it or not. So you have to go, you have to walk, you have to walk the dog. And, and it's such a wonderful thing to walk a dog because even if you start off thinking, oh, you know, I don't really want to go for a walk. The dog rushes off with such joy and abandon that instantly you think, oh, gosh, this is marvelous. You know, this is right. this is a wonderful walk. So they are they are the best walking companion in, in my personal view. Nothing, nothing beats walking with a dog. And, and because, you know, there's some really interesting research, actually, that showed that the dogs who had most yeah, were walked rigorously had much closer bonds with their owners. There's something very, very bonding, isn't there, when you walk with a dog? That the the way the the relationship changes when you're out walking with them, you know, they're not just your your sofa your sofa cuddle bug. Right. They are your companion. They're your friend. They're your They're your equal. In fact, quite often, my I don't know about your dog, but my dog would lead me. You know, oh, she yeah. would go ahead. She would choose the path, and I would follow. And it was a complete sort of reversal of our usual our usual roles. So uh, it was a very important part of my relationship with my dog were these you know, twice, thrice daily walks. And in fact, when she died, I was completely at a loss. I thought, I, I, I thought at first, at first of all, I had to walk. I was sort of, I thought I'd, I'd get up early and think I've, I've got to walk. And then my husband would say, but, but we haven't got a dog now. And I'd say, it doesn't matter, I have to walk. So I had to walk, but I didn't have my dog with me. And it was a very, very strange experience. So just relish those walks because there's nothing like a, a really good walk with a dog. Well, you're going to have to tell your husband you need to get another dog. 
Oh, uh, we've been, yeah, we've you been. You know, a couple of things that you mentioned in that, or one thing you mentioned in that chapter, and then something else that came to my mind while you were talking. Let's let's take the second first. So when I'm walking a dog, and you've got this experience, the dog, I always figure on the long walks in the afternoon, it's this is her time, right? She's, mm. like you said, she leads. And then, but she doesn't just keep walking. She walks and then she stops and she sniffs and she looks around. And at first, I'm like, what are you doing? We're out here. You got to keep moving. But <laughs> she just doesn't do that. And then I, I finally switched. I mean, I've had dogs forever. But I finally switched my attitude to, okay, you found something interesting to sniff at. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to do what you do. But what is there about this spot that I can also tune into and not just be waiting for you to just move on? Because she's not doing anything. She's not, you know, going to, to relieve herself. She's just smelling. It's a smell smelling. walk. Yeah. So, so I'm trying to use her as a, okay, let's stop and be mindful of this place, which I think leads me into something that you say in the chapter about a Swedish study that, if I get it right, that, that if... People who have, and, I, and we're talking about dogs. I don't know if it's true of, let's just talking to someone about horses and someone else about cats. So I don't want to be, you know, speciesist or something. But the study you cite, the Swedish study you cite says that having a canine friend lowers your risk of death in all the categories. Absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Uh, and again, I think... Uh, uh, in the pandemic here, when we were all sort of, we weren't allowed to, to meet anyone, everyone went crazy for dogs. And in fact, it, it spawned a whole it's a whole line of criminal <laughs> criminal activity as dogs were being smuggled around. But people were desperate to get a puppy or a, a, dog, a dog, actually any sort of dog. And it was that, you know, that, that sense of, you know, they, they needed the, they needed the, the companionship. Uh, and they needed that that touch, that that tactile. You know, we weren't we weren't allowed to hug anyone, and particularly people who were living on their. The, you know, the dogs became very very popular, and in fact, the whole of London at the moment is covered in is covered in, is full of dogs, which which is rather nice. So uh, I've completely lost my thread there. <laughs> but you know, the, 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 oh, the Swedish study, yes, that's right, yes, yes, and of course loneliness. You know, people who are loneliness is is one of the the big risk factors for for death, you know, with some people saying that loneliness is as dangerous for your health as, as you know, smoking or a sedentary life or eating processed food. So a, a dog is really a foil against loneliness, it's companionship. And, and then they bring all these other interesting little things into the home. You know, they, they, they change your people who have dogs have, have better microbiomes. They have more diverse uh, gut flora just from sharing their lives in, in their homes with a dog so well, that, that is, also could be part of it that, that gives me a new uh, perspective on all the crap that she brings into the house yeah <laughs> it's all it's it all doing is, you uh, good it's doing me good okay <laughs> you know i mentioned when we when i was doing the introduction uh, your book windswept walking the paths of trailblazing women in which you do just what it says you 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 explore a number of women walkers you do the same thing in the new book, 52 Ways to Walk. And the woman I wanted you to, to talk to us about is a woman who was, I've never met her, obviously, you'll tell us why she's, she's been dead quite a long time, but Alexandra David Neal. Oh, yes. She was somebody, when I was studying religion and Buddhism in particular in the 70s and 80s, she was, you know, like top on everyone's reading list. You know, her, her, her writing about wandering around in Tibet, 
This was oh, not yes. something that women did back then. I mean, she was extraordinary. Tell us about Alexandra David Neal. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Well, she was absolutely extraordinary. She was a, originally an opera singer, of all things. She luckily married a man who was A, quite wealthy, and B, very happy to let her just go off on her adventures. So she, she sort of struck gold, really, in, in that respect, because most women would never have been allowed to, uh, to go off and wander around, uh, wander around Tibet as she was. But she was obviously also you know, brilliantly intellectual. And so, you know, she, she spoke multiple languages. She gave up being an opera singer and then, and then decided that, you know, Buddhism was her calling. So she became, well, she, well, she sort of, I think, fair to say she sort of became a Buddhist, but she, she studied it. And then she set off to um, Tibet and she was the first woman to go into, into Lhasa and into the uh, hidden city. And she went in disguise. She had to disguise herself as a as a man, a peasant man, and she had a, she had this wonderful guide, this young young guy who took her everywhere. And they, you know, she walked through snow. In fact, she was, I mean, she's one of these extraordinary women that made me rethink walking because she used she writes beautifully about how wonderful it is to be with yeah to be totally immersed in elements that we would or you know not want to be out in you know, she loved the snow she loved the wind she loved the remoteness she loved the solitude so all the things that most of us today are like oh no i wouldn't want to do that she just relished it and and she writes about it in such an evocative way that it it really you're reading her you think gosh why you know why why am i why did why do these things frighten me so much you know why what is it that i, I why do i not want to be in the cold and why do I not want to walk in snow? Why do I not? Why do I not want to walk alone in the dark? So she does. She does a, a lot of very dangerous walking as well. And of course, she she learns to keep herself warm through through breathing, which has a has a name, which has gotten out of my head at the moment. That was what is the name for? Um, oh, I have to look up in the book. Anyway, I, I don't remember the name, but but Tibetans have this technique for. A uh, certain kind of breathing to warm the body. That's and right. So it's a self-heat. It's a way of breathing that self-heats them. So although she was often very, very cold and in, and you know freezing, freezing, below freezing temperatures, she was able to keep herself warm through her you know her, her breathing techniques. And then of course she came back to she came back. She eventually settled in France and uh, lived out the rest of her life there. But she also lived to be incredibly old. As she was a centenarian, so she was like hundred. I think she was about hundred and two or something when she died. So. You know, this, this, uh, this, these very grueling walks had, in some way, in some way, sort of uh, you know, fostered in her not just the curiosity, but also, yeah, you know, re- really good health. But no, she's a, she's a really interesting woman, and I wish I knew more about her. She's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and if if Alexandra David Neal is new to anyone who's listening to the podcast, check her out. Go to a library. Go to a bookstore. Um, 
preferably independent, but any bookstore. And see, though I doubt you're going to find an Alexander David Neal book anymore on the shelves of a bookstore, but you will in a library, certainly online. She is amazing. And her, her adventures are, I don't know, if I say mind-blowing, that sounds a little cliche, but really, really impactful when, yes. you, read, when you read her, her about her, when you read her, tell her story. So let, let's move beyond Tibetan walking. <laughs> Talk about, go back to the idea of who has time to do this? I was talking to someone about your book and the first response was, yeah, oh, sure. But, 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 who, but who's got time for this? And I said, well, you talk about, you know, I'm quoting, you know, I'm, I'm citing you. And, and I said, well, Annabelle talks about taking a 12-minute walk. Mm. And then their response was, oh, well, but who has 12 minutes? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So my sense is that time is not the real concern of most people. Something else uh, is, is acting as a block. Because if you don't have 12 minutes, I, I don't know, that makes no sense to me. Something else must be doing that. Do you have a sense, and we've sort of talked around this a little bit, but do you have a sense of why people just don't want to do this? Well, I do, actually. And it's, it's not my own idea. There's an American evolutionary biologist who wrote a book called Exercised, and it came out last year. And he explains, he spends a lot of time um, living with tribes and studying them. And he, he explains that the human body is really, you know, we're also designed to preserve all our energy so that, you know, should a lion chase us or should we need to go and hunt down a, hunt down a stag for supper, we've got, we've got that, those, those reserves. So uh, what he said was quite interesting, actually, and it helped me understand why, you know, my children are like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to go out. <laughs> it's that, you know, there is also this, this natural innate instinct in us, which is to just sit and preserve and to preserve our energy in case we need it later. So that would have been very useful you know, uh, 2,000 years ago, or even 1,000 years ago, or even 500 years ago, when, you know, we may well have had to run away or preserve our energy in case there was no food coming. But we don't live in a world now where we need to preserve our energy. In fact, quite the reverse, you know, there's such an abundance of everything, of food and warmth, that, you know, it, 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 we've moved into a situation where, where it's the opposite, isn't it? We actually need to force ourselves to go out and to use up all this energy that we're sitting conserving all day in front of our laptops. So that helped me be a little bit more compassionate to all the people that were like, oh, oh, you know, oh, it's too cold. It's too wet. It's too dark. Oh, you know, whatever. So, so something better on Netflix tonight or whatever right. their excuse was. So your, your bottom line is the person I was talking to who says 12 minutes, who's got 12 minutes? They're really concerned about protecting themselves in case of a saber-toothed tiger attack. Oh, at a very, very, very deep, <laughs> deeply unconscious yes. uh, level. Yes. Yeah. In other words, that's also in our that's also in our DNA. This this you know this instinct to to preserve energy, to preserve our, our whatever little energy we have in case we need it later. Well, there hasn't been a saber-toothed tiger attack in my town in Tennessee. In well, maybe since prehistoric times, but and maybe not even then. I don't know if we had saber-toothed tigers, but I get I, I get the the 
the research. I get the gist. I get the gist of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's quite, it's quite nice to have a reason because otherwise I kept thinking, well, why? Why is everyone so keen just to sit on the sofa for hour after hour after hour? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is crazy. I, I work, I work from home. And my office has a window that looks out into the street and there's, and we have sidewalks, not everywhere has sidewalks. And there are always people on the sidewalk, sometimes with their dogs, sometimes just by themselves, but there's like a parade of people walking by and we put what's called a little free library on our front lawn near the sidewalk. That's just filled with books that people bring by. And and lots of times people come by with bags and they take books out and they walk away with them or they leave books and take other books. But also they, they come by in cars, which I, which is fine. I mean, as long as they're using the library, but because there's, this is such a walkable little town, I wanted to create a place where people could stop. So there's a bench and you can sit on the bench and look at the books that people have put in the little free library. And, you know, it becomes a little, it's not a watering hole. There's no water, but it's a reading hole. And oftentimes I'll walk outside and just talk to the people and, and say, oh, you know, what's your name? Where, what part of the neighborhood are you from? What kind of books do you like? And I think that, I mean, I don't think, I know that wouldn't happen if people weren't walking. Mm, mm. It's a community building thing. Even if you're walking, no, if you imagine I'm walking by myself or with my dog, Still, there's other people and you do, you do walk into them. Let me, let me ask you, this is an off-the-wall question, and, and then I'll, I'll get back to the book. But I took a class not too long ago about an architectural class, and the class was about the disappearance of a front porch. Now, this is about American rural or semi-rural architecture, residential architecture, and where I live, my house is a hundred years old and it's a tiny house. And, but anyway, it's got, it's got a front porch. I never grew up with a front porch. I always lived in much more modern houses and the, the backyard was where all the action was. And this woman was giving the seminar and she said, there was a time when people lived in the front of their houses because everybody was walking around and you would meet people. And then somehow that shifted and we started building fences around our backyards and doing backyard patio things and barbecuing in the backyard where you never meet another soul. And it just seems to me that your book is calling for a kind of revolution. I mean, you're not, there's no chapter on building a front porch, but you're calling for a revolution, not just in an individual's, you know, get up, move, it's, it's good for you emotionally, physically, spiritually, but a social revolution. Get out and discover where you live and who you live among. Yes, yes, they're absolutely, you know, please, please, please. And and when you're out walking, you know, please don't walk along looking at your phone. You know, <laughs> the other day I passed someone walking along and he was actually watching a film on his uh, iPhone. And I just felt like sort of taking it off him, although he was actually walking, so I can't complain. He wasn't <laughs> in a car. But, you know, um, that whole that whole thing about a community is, is, you know, community is built by people being outside and being public. And, and that happens when you're walking. So our grandparents would have been walking all the time, bumping into neighbours every time they walked to church or walked to the shop or walked to the market. 
they would have just been passing their their neighbors and and people all the time so there was these constant little points of interaction which you know we we're losing rapidly because people are now getting in their cars and just sitting in traffic and the only time they get out of their car is if they're really angry with the driver in front of them and they've got some road rage there's there's, there's nothing there's nothing conducive to community building when we all, all right. drive in cars in fact the reverse so what yeah. what you're describing is exactly what i'm watching right now i am binge watching father brown mysteries on my on my british cable station and you know everyone walks the only there's there's two cars in the show one is owned by a very wealthy woman and the other is the police cars police have cars everyone else is father brown's on a bicycle most of the time everyone else is just walking around and they're always bumping into each other and they're always killing each other because that's the show but that kind of community is part of your heritage, I think, as as being British, and and that was part of uh, the American psyche and the American cityscape at one yeah. time, but but no longer. We've got it. We've got to get back to that. We are gonna. Well, we've actually gone over the amount of time that I said we would talk, but I I want to ask you one more question and then ask you to read something from the book. One of the chat, well, it's, it's on, on page 55 in the book, if you need to look it up, but I don't think you will. You have this notion of walking with your ears. So we've mm. been talking about what you see and even the dogs are smelling things. Walking with your our ears. Can you tell us a little bit about what that might mean? Yes. I think that we, and again, this is something that's uh, becoming more or clearer and clearer really is that we're becoming much more visual aren't we uh, everything is about what we take in through our eyes and with you know with technology and we've become even more visual i think and television and whatnot but actually we've sort of forgotten a little bit about our, our ears and what we can hear and it was a, a neuroscientist actually who said to me you know go go for a walk and and uh, he said, put your cup, your hands around your ears and, and sort of pull them forward. So you've got sort of like elephant ears. So, and it's definitely worth, worth trying. And he said, and that, what that does is it amplifies the sounds. And then he said, and try and walk very, very quietly, sort of on your, on the tips of your toes. Uh, and then he said, and just, just listen. And I went, I went for a walk like that. I must've looked a bit odd because I had my ears stuck out. It, it does it, everything, it amplifies everything. And when you walk on your on the, the, the tips of your toes, uh, everything also seems to be louder, which just might be because you can't hear your own feet. But you start to tune into all of the sounds that normally you miss because normally we're so well either we're, we're plugged into something on our iPhones or we're busy with our eyes, aren't we? Looking. Right. Uh, so it changes it changes how you walk, and I would recommend everyone to try. And the other thing I'd recommend to do if you're interested in in how how using your ears completely changes the experience of walking is to go for a walk at night when you can't see anything because uh, there's no light but just just walk along a track we're in the dark and just and just listen and it's an absolutely wonderful wonderful experience because you start to hear you start to hear you start to hear the inside of your body you hear your breath you hear your heart you hear the crunch of your feet and then you start to hear you move out and you start to hear, you know, the wind and the leaves and all sorts of other things, you know, traveling across the, you know, across the fields or across the city um, and, and things that you've never noticed before when you walk. And it's, um, 
It's, it's, it's slightly strange. You think, how come I've never noticed any of this? So that those are, yes, that yeah. walk with your ears. Walk with your ears. Excellent. I, I'm going to ask you to bring the podcast conversation to a close by actually reading something from your book. I loved the way the book ends. So I'd like you to read the last two paragraphs on page 221. This book is my love letter to walking. I hope it compels you to get up, get out and get going, to relish the great privilege and richness of a life lived frequently on foot and often in the wild open air. I'll leave the last word to my father, whose refusal to drive compelled me to walk and who died as I was writing this book. Move more gently, consider the lightness of the feather, follow the flight of the wren. And that's it. Our guest today, Annabelle Streets, is the author of 52 Ways to Walk. Annabelle, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at SpiritHealthMag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.